And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The very first line of our text this morning. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So if you've been tracking along with us over the last three weeks, this is the third of three parables that all come out of or all result from the challenge that has been posed to Jesus by the chief priests and the elders of the people. On this day, as Jesus proclaimed and he taught the gospel message to the crowds that were gathered at the temple, these religious leaders approached Jesus as he spoke to gruffly and abruptly interrupt him with a question. A question designed, at least to their minds, in their minds, to embarrass Jesus or to trap Jesus in front of such a large and eagerly attentive audience. And so they asked him in verse 23 of chapter 21, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? As was the case with pretty much every question they brought to Jesus, their intentions were not to gain any sort of knowledge about him or understanding so that they might appreciate him and consider whether he might actually be the long-awaited Messiah sent to them by God. Their objective was much more sinister than that. Their scheme in bringing these types of questions to Jesus was to shame him, to demean him, to discredit him, and even worse, to find some way by which to accuse him of a crime worthy of death. And so as they've routinely done throughout the Gospels, and as they will continue to do four more times in chapter 22 alone, they attempt to snare Jesus in their noose. But it seems like they never learn, does it? Because every time they venture such a ruse, whether it's a question about some point of doctrine or a, whether it's a, their response to some rebuke by Jesus of their own hypocritical practices or it's some effort to trick him into speaking against the Roman government or asking him to produce the credentials that permit him to speak or teach in the temple, one of the things we see as we work through the gospel is Jesus repeatedly putting them in their place, revealing to the crowds the hypocrisy and the evil motivations and the faulty interpretations of Scripture possessed by these religious leaders, or the fact that they fear man over God. And even though they were consistently and repeatedly and soundly rebuked by Jesus at every turn, they still decided, you know what, let's keep challenging him. Let's keep bringing questions to him. They still persisted in their labors. Seems like a losing strategy to me. I mean, if I'm a Pharisee and I'm routinely rebuked and I'm routinely embarrassed, or if I'm a scribe and the attentions of my heart, my hypocrisy and my desire for the adorations of the crowd over and above the glory of God is so clearly displayed to the crowds with every single interaction I have with this Jesus fella, I might think twice about insisting on and persevering in such a losing strategy. But here we are once again. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have retreated and regrouped, and they're trying again. And this time, Jesus responds with a string of parables. The spiritual artillery is being fired in rapid succession in these three parables. 
In the first parable, the, one, the parable of the two sons in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for their response to John the Baptist's ministry to and among the nation of Israel. For their repudiation of the call from God through the prophet John to repent in Matthew 3, 2, and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, and for their refusal to recognize and accept the prophetic announcement of John that Jesus is, in fact, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, according to John 1, 29. And as John said, as John pointed out in John 1, 34, John the Baptist said, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And yet, the religious leaders simply rejected everything John told them. And Jesus rebuked them for that in the first parable. In the second parable, in chapter 21, verses 33 to 46, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for standing in a long line of religious leaders who have always rejected the prophetic voices sent to Israel by God to call the people back to himself. The Lord, who is patient and abounding in steadfast love, we learned last week he sent prophet after prophet to his chosen people, and almost every single time the people took hold of that prophet and committed a very variety of crimes against him. As Jesus said in chapter 21, verse 35, the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And now here we have the religious leaders in Jesus' day challenging Jesus in the temple on this day on the cusp of committing the same atrocities as their predecessors. And as Jesus launches into this third parable, he's going to rebuke them for their rejection of himself, their rejection of the loving invitation of the God of Israel to the celebration, to the banquet, to the wedding feast that has been prepared for them by God and the one he is calling them to right now. He will also warn all who reject the gracious offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will indeed, whether Jew or Gentile, find themselves bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so as we look, as we begin looking at the parable, we'll see in verse 1 to 7, it begins with an invitation scorned. Look at verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So the phrase kingdom of heaven here is synonymous with the phrase you'll see in other gospels, the kingdom of God. Matthew's gospel is specifically written to a Jewish audience, and for that reason, he substitutes the word God with heaven, because Matthew will keep from causing any sort of unnecessary offense to the Jews that are reading his gospel account, because they were very careful about using the name and the title of God. And so as Jesus speaks here about the kingdom of heaven, he is referring to the spiritual community of the redeemed. He is speaking about all who have bowed the knee to the Son, all who have come into the kingdom by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of the kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is speaking of here is not the geographical kingdom, but the, the ongoing, the spiritual ongoing sphere or domain of God's gracious rule over everyone who is truly saved. 
You see, the religious leaders who are listening to Jesus on this day, as he told this parable, would have understood this kingdom to be their possession exclusively, almost exclusively. Sure, they might concede that certain Gentiles, like Rahab, for example, who hid the spies way back in the book of Numbers, when they scouted the land of Canaan, or Ruth the Moabite, who turned to and served the God of Israel, they, those Gentiles would be included as well. But these were the exceptions rather than the rule. The kingdom was primarily for the nation of Israel in the mind of Israel. And Jesus is about to topple that understanding of the kingdom in this parable. And so you see in chapter 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, it may be likened to, it is similar to, it can be illustrated by this scene. And what is the scene? It is that of a king who gives a wedding feast for his son. You see that in verse 2. Do you see who it is that's throwing this banquet? It's a king. A king, the one with all the resources to throw the most lavish and exceptional banquet with all of the most delightful and delicious provisions. And the banquet is held in the king's most magnificent palace. This is a feast unlike any other feast thrown by a great and generous king to celebrate the wedding of his son. And the king invites all of the honored guests to sit at the table and enjoy and celebrate this wedding feast with him. There was at this time, in this day, no more significant, no more prestigious and joyful an event as this, that the king would honor his son by way of a spectacular wedding feast. The whole wedding banquet scene here pictures the promised blessings of God to Israel as the Lord promised the arrival of Messiah and invited them to the privileged and favored seats at the table. And here the time has come. Messiah is here and the Lord is sending out his servants to call Israel to attend the feast. As Jesus describes in the next verse, verse 3. The king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. See, the, weddings, the invitations have already been sent out to the nation of Israel. And now the time of the banquet has arrived. All the preparations have been made. And their presence at this most honorable feast is now requested by the king. See, this parable is very much situated in its own culture and describes the cultural customs of this day. You see, the process of throwing a wedding feast for any celebration in this day started with an invitation an invitation well in advance of the actual celebration itself. And the people who would receive the invitation would RSVP back to the inviter their intentions. And then when all of the preparations were made and everything was ready for the feast, the host would then send out his servants. They didn't have great watches, right? They would send out his servants to say, everything's ready, and summon them, the invitees, to the feast. That's how things were done before phone calls and text messages and emails. The invitation here speaks to the initial calling of the patriarchs and God's entering into a covenant with the nation and promising them to bless them with Messiah. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God spoke to Abram saying, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the world shall be blessed. And again, the invitation goes out to Moses when the Lord called out to him from the burning bush and Moses asked his name, who should I say has sent me? And the Lord said in Exodus 3.14, tell them that I am has sent you. And the voice of the Lord spoke to the nation of Israel through Moses as they enter into the promised land and he enters into covenant with them. And he said, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. The Lord your God is merciful. He's a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So the invitation had been sent. And throughout the ages... The servants or the prophets had called to this rebellious people, obey the commandments of God. Love the Lord your God. Trust in the name of the Lord your God. And sit at the banquet table. But as the parable continues, in verse 3, the king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But listen to this. They would not come. Now, for a Jew reading this story in Matthew's Gospel, that is a shocking twist. They wouldn't come to the feast when the time came. It's actually for them a bewildering scene that the invitees who'd already indicated their intention to be present at the banquet refused to attend when the servants came and summoned them. In fact, this type of scenario was so outlandish that the people listening in would have thought that is utter foolishness. In fact, this type of development probably wouldn't have even been realistic to them. You could imagine them saying to themselves as they hear it, no one would do such a thing. How foolish must these folks be to refuse to attend the feast that the king invites them to? You see, being invited to such a splendid celebration was like this was one of the highest honors of the day. And so to so callously and carelessly refuse the summons when the fat calf was put on the table, when the oxen had been cooked uh, and all the preparations had been made constituted a serious and supreme insult. And this phrase, they would not come, speaks to the idea that they didn't go to the feast simply because they didn't want to. That's it. It wasn't because there were some other emergencies they had to take care of or some pressing matters that they had to attend to. This phrase means they simply had no desire to show up. Again, the symbolism in the parable is quite easy to follow. The Lord has made all the preparations. Messiah has arrived. Israel, come to the feast. Come and honor, exalt and praise and believe in my beloved Son. Enter into the joy of your king. Dine at his table. Receive the blessings of the feast, forgiveness, and eternal life. But as we noted last week, the religious leaders have continually refused to hear the royal summons that has been spoken to them by the prophets. And now, as the Son of God stands among them, speaking to them, they refuse the summons from the very mouth of 
the son himself. They didn't want to take their place at the table. Instead, they chose to continue on with their day-to-day routines. But notice something about the king. He's, he's gracious. And so he sends out a second summons, a third invitation, but a second summons to the expected guest. The first being the invitation to the feast, the second being the servants calling the invited guests to enjoy it on the day it was prepared. And now again in verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. These other servants that are dispatched to Israel to call Israel to repentance are people like John the Baptist and after him the apostles and other New Testament disciples like Stephen, for example. Now, in the parable, one could assume that perhaps there was some miscommunication. Perhaps the first series of servants that went out to call the nation to the table, perhaps they didn't hear the call clearly enough. Perhaps there was something lost in communication. And so the king sent out another batch of servants with a clearer, more informative announcement. I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. The king announces through these servants that he has prepared everything. It's on the table. The delicious feast is prepared. It's warm. It's ready to be served. So come now, take, eat, enjoy, celebrate. Now is the time. Today's the day. The food is waiting for you. It smells so good, but it tastes even better. And the Lord, who is likened to the king in this parable, you do notice, he prepares the entire feast. The guests don't need to bring anything or add anything. The Lord has done it all. The only thing for you is to attend and to enjoy. The most extravagant food has been prepared and it's ready for you to eat. All you have to do is get there. Come to the wedding feast. And this second group of servants sent to call the invitees to the feast, they meet with three excruciatingly sad responses. Look at the first, verse 5. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. This first group, these are what we'd call the indifferent. They simply didn't care. They weren't interested They shrugged off the invitation, ignoring it in favor of their daily concerns. They were so preoccupied with everything going on in their day-to-day life that they took no notice, they paid no attention, they turned a blind eye to the king's wedding feast when the servants came and summoned them to it. So contextually, these invitees represent the Israelites and the leaders among Israel who while they didn't actively go out and seek to kill Jesus, nor were they deliberately hostile to him, they simply ignored him. They simply ignored the call of the Lord to life in his name. But this group also speaks to those who throughout history have been confronted with the summons to repent of sin, turn to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of sin and the eternal joy. And who yet, after hearing that call, ignore it. Speaking for myself, it's hard for me to understand 
the degree of carelessness so many take when it comes to their souls. In conversations that I have with people who are unsaved and don't really think about spiritual matters, I'll tend to ask them this question, do you believe that there's some part of you that lives on after you die, like some spirit or some soul that you have that remains when you're gone? And surprisingly, more often than not, the answer is yes. So then the follow-up is, have you taken any care or expressed any concern then for what actually happens to that spirit or soul when you die? Have you thought about that? Have you put any thought into or explored anything about who might be waiting for that soul on the other side of death? And the answer to that question usually tends to be, well, not really. Such a flippant attitude to the issues of the soul is just beyond me. It's hard for me to grasp such a careless attitude. There's an old Greek legend that tells of a king named Dionysius who every day, hearing the flattery of his subjects, wanted to teach one particular flatterer, um, Damocles, a man bent on fawning and bootlicking his way into a more prestigious seat in the king's court. Dionysius asked Damocles, would you like to switch places with me and you sit in the seat of the king for the day to see what it's like to be the ruler of a vast domain such as this? And Damocles, obviously, of course, of course I would want that. So he was dressed up in the royal attire and he was seated in the seat in the chair of the king and served all of the sumptuous food. And while everything was being put in front of Damocles, Dionysius had an unsheathed sword with the point facing down hung just above Damocles' head by one single horse hair. A sword that might, at any moment might pierce his skull and end his life. And Damocles, rather than enjoying the food, enjoying the mirth, enjoying the celebration, trembled. And the food had no taste for him. The royal musicians playing the beautiful music provided him no comfort. He could not find any joy or contentment in any of the provisions that had been set out before him. Why? Because the sword dangled above his head. The sword... The sword hanging above his head dominated his thoughts and consumed his mind. And the Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks, referencing this legend, applies it this way, saying, All of you, a sharp sword, a two-edged sword, a sword of displeasure, a sword of wrath, a sword of vengeance hangs over the head of every wicked person, meaning any that refuse Christ even when he is in his most, most earthly, prospering, and flourishing condition, and had sinners but the eyes to see the sword, it would be as handwriting on the wall. It would cause their thoughts to be troubled, and their countenances to be changed, and their joints to be loosed, and their knees to be dashed together as they knocked in fear. This is how we should be thinking about our souls. The sword hangs above our head, and any moment that hair might break. And if your soul isn't ready to meet whoever is on the other side, the one we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, that is an, eternally, that is an eternal decision. 
of all the foolish things that any human being can do, the pinnacle of foolishness, the mountaintop of foolishness is lacking any concern for or being indifferent to the eternal state of your soul. And so to all who'd rather play a round of golf or, or examine their farms or lay in their beds or see to their businesses while remaining unconcerned and apathetic for your soul, apathetic to your need for salvation, may the Lord reveal the sword that is suspended by a single hair above your own head and may it strike terror and tastelessness into every single one of your worldly pursuits. May it lead you to sensibility and awareness of your ultimate need the grace of God obtained by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews warned his readers of this very same indifference, asking the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the answer is, we won't. We can't. The second group responded with zealous hostility towards the servants. So the first group is indifferent. The second group is zealously hostile toward the servants who called on them to attend the feast. You see in verse 6, the rest seized the king's servants and treated them shamefully. The word for shame here, shamefully, describes an outrageous disrespect, mistreatment, and insult. This group, angered by the king's persistent calling to the wedding celebration, spoke and acted in the most villainous, nasty, and unspeakable ways toward the servants who brought them the summons. And already in Matthew's Gospel, we see this playing out in the lives of Christ and the disciples. The Pharisees have already accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. John tells us that Jesus came to his own people and they didn't even receive him. The religious leaders, they were seeking to trap Jesus and trip him up and discredit him and shame him at every turn. At every conceivable place and time, people were hunting for methods by which to disrespect and mistreat and insult Jesus. And not only that, but also those who serve him. Those who serve him by going out into the world and continually calling people to the wedding feast. The apostles, for example... They taught the people, they proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, according to Acts chapter 4, and the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4, verse 3, arrested them for it and put them in custody. And these same religious leaders tried to silence the apostles, threatening them and going even further, flogging them. And again, not only the apostles, but the average Christians suffered the same hostility. As you read about Stephen in Acts chapter 7, or the believers in Thessalonica to whom Paul wrote these words, you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved." And we can see the same thing happening today, right? To those who go out into the world and summon people to the feast. To those who refuse to go along with the flow of culture and accept the sinful tendencies of the culture, but who instead expose the darkness of culture, which is what we are called to do. Cast light into the darkness. You see many 
who are seized and shamed and mocked and insulted. But about such active and outrageous hostility against the servants of the Lord, the Apostle Peter counseled us in this way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Indifferent, actively hostile, and thirdly, these servants not only seized the king's servants to treat them shamefully, but they also, in verse 6, killed them. You see that? They killed them. And we read in Acts chapter 12, James the Apostle, for example, the brother of John, is killed. And it said, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Why? Because James was committed to calling people, to summoning people to the glorious gospel feast prepared for them by God. And even today, it seems like every few days when I read, I read about some batch of Christians who've been slaughtered by Muslims in Nigeria. I don't know if you heard, but I think I read yesterday 60, 60 Christians slaughtered by Nigerian Muslims in that country. And I hear those, I hear that, those types of stories almost daily. And in the leaders in the nation of Israel, they repeatedly either ignored, seized, and treated shamefully or killed the servants that had been sent to them by the Lord the King who sent his servants to invite them to his wonderfully prepared feast. Do you see the foolishness of it all? you see it's what the Lord is inviting us to? you see what the Lord was inviting his people Israel to? A beautiful table with a bunch of wonderful and delicious food, a party, a celebration, a joyful time, and they're just like, nope. And in this like manner, as we go out into the world, that's what we're inviting people to. Come, enjoy the gospel, enjoy the good news, enjoy forgiveness, enjoy eternal life, enjoy Jesus, the lover of your soul. Nope. The table is set. The oxen and the fattened calves are prepared. The chairs have been pulled out and they're waiting for you. The silverware is set up beside the plates. The summons is sent. But Israel wouldn't come. They will not attend. And while the king has great patience, there is a limit to that patience. Because of their rejection, because of their outrageous treatment of the king's servants, look at verse 7, the king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. So the summons being repeatedly spurned and rejected means it's no longer, serv no longer servants sent to the invitees, but now troops. His army, his military force. Whereas in the parable of the tenants, the owner sends his beloved son, here he sends his armies to lay waste to those who've rejected the invitation and killed his servants. Now, there are many who might assume the Lord would never do such a thing. The Lord would never do such a thing to humanity, but Scripture is clear on this. The patience of the Lord will one day turn into wrath for all who spurn and reject His name and continue in their wickedness and sin unto death. 
We see it in Genesis chapter 6, right? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man's heart was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And the Lord sent a flood to accomplish his word, wiping out all of humanity except for eight who were on the boat. I know we like to take that story and make it into a cutesy little tale where you have a boat and some pictures of giraffes coming out of the windows in the, in the ark. That's not what it's about. This is a story or a, a historical event that reveals to us the holiness of God, the hatred that God has towards sinfulness and wickedness. And again, in Sodom and Gomorrah, as the men of the city surrounded Lot's house, and called out to Lot, saying, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Know here means engage in homosexual acts with them, whether they're willing to or not. The Lord responded to their grievous sinfulness by raining on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, overthrowing those cities. And here in the parable, the troops are sent by the king to destroy those murderers and to burn the city. You see that, right? Destroy the murderers, burn the city. And Jesus is here making a prophetic pronouncement that came to pass in AD 70. In AD 70, General Titus, the son of the Roman Emperor Vespasian and future emperor himself, took hold of the Roman army and descended upon Jerusalem, demolishing the city, raising almost every single building, every single dwelling, and slaughtering over one million Jewish inhabitants. One million. Some estimates have it, 1.1 million. And with the Jewish populace effectively dispersed from the city, the Roman, this city of Jerusalem was renamed by the Romans Aelia Capitolina. And the Jewish historian Josephus Writing about this historical event, the raising of Jerusalem, wrote this, Neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priest alike, were massacred. End quote. The nation of Israel had, according to the parable, forfeited their seats at the table by rejecting the king's summons. And now... The king, refusing to accept an empty banquet hall, look at the next verse, said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. This is kind of summed up for us with the Apostle Paul when he spoke to the Jews who were jealous of the crowds he was drawing to hear the word of the Lord. He sums up this part of the parable well in Acts chapter 13 when he said this, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Israel. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So you see, the religious leaders in Israel proved unworthy. They proved undeserving. They proved unfit for this great invitation. Ultimately, every single one of us is unworthy of this invitation to sit at the table of the king. But the nation of Israel proved at this time extra unworthy in that all of the preparations had been made for them. 
They even ticked off, yes, I will be there in the box on the RSVP card. They signed up on the Google form to attend and then refused to attend. And so the king now sends his servants out into the main roads, in verse 9, to invite to the wedding feast as many as they find. Go to the busy places. Invite other guests, says the king. Proclaim the invitation to the feast to anyone and as many as you find. Or, as Jesus will say after his resurrection, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go! Tell the people, whoever they are, wherever they are, whatever time you find yourself in, and it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter what they've done, it doesn't matter how sinful they are or how supposedly righteous they think they are. Tell them, the king requests your presence at his feast. Yes, he invites you to the banquet. Now, so we are clear, the parable here is speaking about the free gift of the gospel. The feast here represents eternal life with the Lord. And the Lord invites everyone to sit at his table. And those servants include us, if you truly believe this morning. If we love Christ and are known by him and forgiven by his grace, we are the servants who are called to go out into the roads and gather together everyone we find, whether they're bad or whether they're good. And the servants don't discriminate. We invite everyone both those we might consider good people and those we might consider immoral people or degenerates, those who agree with our outlook on life, those who agree with our political views and the rest, and those who don't agree with our politics and our view on life. We invite people of high social standing and low social standing. We invite and celebrate with those from our own cultural backgrounds and those from other people's other cultural backgrounds. And as the servants go out and gather in all they can, as we are faithful to the call of the Lord, the wedding hall fills up. The nation of Israel had long been invited to participate in the Messianic feast, and when they are bidden to come, they will not. And so now the wedding hall is filled with you, the Gentiles, and me, and you. Yes, you. If you truly believe in Christ, you are now a privileged, honored guest at the wedding feast thrown by the king for his son. You are in a hall filled with others who recline at the table in the presence of the son with you. It's a beautiful picture. But the scene now shifts. As an unworthy individual guest is pointed out in the banquet. A guest who is bound and cast into the outer darkness. And for what reason? Well, let's look at verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guests, meaning when the king came in to behold and to gaze upon everyone who was seated at the table, none of whom actually deserve a seat at that table, everyone seated is there because of the king's generosity. But there was one man... There was one that caught the eye of the king, in verse 11. He saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. In a feast such as this, where people are called and bidden to come to the feast without any sort of prior knowledge or prior preparation, the one throwing the feast would provide for each attender a garment that was fit for this occasion. 
And every single attendee but one accepted and put on this garment that had been supplied by the king. This particular man, however, thought that it was possible to sit at the feast wearing his own clothes. He thought his own garments were sufficient. Perhaps he was a rich man who actually had some respectable clothing and so declined the offer of the wedding robe when they held it out to him at the door. You can imagine him saying, well, there's no stains on, on my robe. I mean, it looks pretty good. might not be as beautiful as some of the other robes that have been provided here, but it'll suffice. I mean, those people need a robe, but I don't. I've got my own. My robe is good enough. And this man proves that it's not only the religious leaders in Israel who fall prey to the noose of self-righteousness. Throughout the New Testament, we see Christ and his righteousness referred to as, and pictured as a garment that we must put on. And that's the picture that's being given to us here. Galatians 3.27, for example, Paul wrote this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And Colossians, to the Colossians, Paul wrote, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. A similar vision was shown to the prophet Zechariah regarding the high priest of his own day. In Zechariah chapter 3, we read this, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So the garment here in question speaks to the righteousness of Christ with which every single one of us must be clothed if we are to sit at the Lord's banqueting table. We know that Christ lived a perfect life that he fulfilled every single jot and tittle and small cross T's, whatever, of the law, every part of it, and he did this for us. And that when we turn to him in faith, he takes upon himself our sin. He takes upon himself our filthy garments. He took upon himself the wrath and the penalty of God that were due to us for our sins in our place, on our behalf, but it doesn't end there. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. It's not that you give him your filthy robes, but that he clothes you in his perfect righteousness. That he imputes to you, he reckons to you, he credits to your account his perfect righteousness. And it's pictured in Scripture as a robe that we put on. And so when God looks at the saved, those who have been saved by grace through faith, he doesn't see the filthy garments that once characterized us, that we once wore, but he sees, because that's been taken away and dealt with by Christ, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ with which we are clothed. But this man at the wedding feast, like the Pharisees, thought, bah, my own clothes. And when you hear that, see and hear my own righteousness is good enough. I'm a pretty good person. I don't need to humble myself and wear someone else's robe. But as he quickly finds out, the king expects and will not let anyone remain in the wedding hall without the appropriate garment. And he said to the man in verse 12, Friend, how did you get in here without a garment? 
So the Lord provides, the king provides this man an opportunity to justify himself to the king. But as will be the case for all who refuse the robes of righteousness offered to them by grace through faith in Christ, he was speechless. The clothes were offered, he refused to put them on. And now upon being questioned by the king, he understood that his decision was inexcusable. He was completely silenced. He was completely quiet. His mouth was stopped as all mouths will be when they are questioned by the king. All will be speechless when they stand before the Lord and answer why they refuse to put on Christ. They will have nothing to appeal to when confronted by the sight of the majestic and stunning holiness of the king. See, this man wanted to go to the feast on his own terms, but see what that got him? The king sets the terms of the feast, and all who would enjoy and celebrate therein must accept and put on the garments that are provided by the king. So hear me. Not everyone who sits in the visible church seats is a part of the kingdom of God. There are a number of people who come into churches wearing their own robes refusing to take the robe of righteousness offered to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. And to them I would say, if you would be a Christian, then be a Christian. Do what Scripture commands. Humble yourself before the Lord in repentance. Turn to Christ in faith. Put on the robe of righteousness that is offered. Deny self. Produce the fruit of repentance and righteousness. Enough with those who take the name of Jesus without actually obeying what He commands. Enough with trying to sit in the banquet hall wearing the robes of your own righteousness rather than trusting in Him. The King will call you to account for such foolishness should you continue. And see what comes to pass for this man. By command of the King in verse 13, The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Meaning, secure the man and throw him out of the well-lit banquet hall into the outer darkness, or in other words, toss him into the eternal fires of hell. In that place there will be perpetual, never-ending sobbing and just punishment for their wicked rebellion. For many are called, verse 14, meaning the general external call to to attend the feast, to repent and believe the gospel. It is proclaimed and extended to everyone, but few are chosen. And the word here for chosen is eklektos. It's the the Greek word that means, from which we get our English word elect. It means selected or chosen. The idea being that not everyone who hears the call externally will hear the call internally by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and so they'll remain unwilling to enter into the feast. As we read earlier, when the Apostle Paul proclaimed the good news to the Gentiles, they began rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so the question then is, don't get too hung up on this, the question is, would you be one who is appointed to eternal life? Then believe. It's as simple as that. Would you be called and chosen? 
Then turn from your sin, humble yourself before the Lord, believe in his name for the forgiveness of sins. Will you be one who thinks they can attend the wedding feast wearing your own tattered, filthy, sin-stained garments? No matter how nice you think they look, no matter how good you think you are, they will always fall short of the glory of God. And should you continue to wear them, should you continue to think that your own righteousness is enough and that God will look at you and say, yeah, you're pretty good, the day will come when you are bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. But should you hear the call to the glorious feast of the gospel and take for yourself the robe that has been provided by the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will recline at the table of the Lord and enjoy His excellencies and His perfections and His wonders for eternity. So the decision is set before you this morning. You can dine at the table of the Lord or you can refuse His invitation. One of these decisions leads to eternal life. One of them leads to eternal condemnation. As the Lord said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, See, I have set before you today life and death. And I pray that you would choose life. I pray that you would put off trusting in yourself. I pray that you would be shaken from your stupor of indifference for your soul and put on Christ for your eternal joy and God's great glory. And if you have already put on Christ, amen and amen, live the life of faith, exalt and praise and lift up the Lord who so graciously invited you to the feast, called you and clothed you, and is preparing for you and mansions in eternal glory. Father, we praise you for your word. Lord, I ask that for any of us who might think of ourselves as generally good people, who think that we can enter into the wedding feast wearing our own filthy garments, that you would convict us and help us to recognize there's only one way to be saved, and that is by your grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here who hasn't done that, that you would be knocking on the door of their soul right now, beating on the door of their soul, kicking in the door of their soul, that they might see and appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is, the risen Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.